0: Welcome again to another edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish sacred aging. I'm Rabbi Richard Address, the director of Jewish sacred aging and the host of these podcasts. Um, If you would like to reach us with suggestions or comments about future shows or past shows, you can just email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. And as you know, these podcasts are designed as part of our Jewish sacred aging work to, to examine some issues related to our own longevity and the issues, the impact of that longevity on our families. And um, we have a, a very, very interesting guest to walk us through some very uh, surprising, controversial and challenging issues that are facing us right now. So without further ado, we welcome Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, the author of a recently published book on repentance and repair. Rabbi Ruttenberg is also the scholar in residence for the NCJW, the National Council of Jewish Women, and the editor of the newsletter, Life is a Sacred Text. All that by means of Shalom. How you doing?
1: Hi. Okay. How are you? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh,
0: what can I tell you? <laughs> you know? Day by day is Groundhog Day every day, as you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Sadly. Um. Anyway. Thank you for joining us and I I appreciate it. First of all, what the National Council of Jewish Women, let's, let's deal with that right away. Talk to me a little bit about what it's a very, very old, prestigious Jewish organization dating back from the 1890s. Uh, your role as scholar in residence is what?
1: So I am, uh, in charge of the J in NCJW in a lot of ways. I get to.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very very well put. Um... (laughs)
1: Um, I get to, uh, think deeply about how, so NCJW, for those of you who don't know, has indeed been around since 1893 and, um, we're a grassroots organization of more than 200,000 advocates around the country in uh, over 50 sections. And we, uh, We write legislation, we pass legislation, we help through service, through advocacy, through education to get laws passed, to make change for women, children, and families uh, of every background across the country, focusing on those most impacted. Our issues are primarily abortion justice, reproductive health rights and justice, uh, voting rights, and an independent and fair judiciary, but there are a number of other issues across the country that our advocates are working on.
0: So um, let, let's let's jump to the most controversial right now. This is being posted in June. Any time now, uh, this, the, those nine people down in Washington are going to make a decision that it seems to be the odds in Las Vegas are saying they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, first question, the easy one, what's NCJW doing vis-a-vis this issue?
1: So, um, we're talking about abortion, of course. Um, we have been working both on the federal and state level on a myriad of uh, sub-issues around abortion justice. We have been writing and passing state law, um, across the country, both uh, working uh, in states where harmful abortion laws are being passed. So, for example, we are aligned with the ACLU suing the state of Arizona as we speak. Uh, So, you know, we're working where harm is being caused. We're involved in getting good laws passed to help protect abortion access on the state level. Uh, We were involved in writing and we've advocated for passing WIPA, the Women's Health Protection Act, which was the law that did not pass uh, just recently, but that would have been the federal law that would have protected abortion rights, whether or not Roe v. Wade was upheld this June. Um, And even if the worst happens in a, a couple of months, we are now in the process of coming up with a... And, and setting into place a, a significant campaign for for what will need to be doing, both in terms of uh, setting up systems to help those who are most impacted, because people who will people will continue to need abortion care, even if abortion is outlawed in twenty six or more states. Um, so there's something called a trigger ban for those who don't know um, laws that are on the books in many states. That will sort of automatically go into effect the minute Roe is overturned, and so there are 26 states, more than half the country, will immediately, immediately uh, lose abortion access if Roe is overturned, Um, and even if if Roe's protections are significantly gutted, many of those trigger laws, trigger bans, will go into effect. And so we're setting up systems to help those who are most impacted um, and to help people who need abortion care to get abortion care. We're setting up systems to to help um, fight for better access to medication abortion, since there are now two pills that people can take up to 10 weeks of pregnancy um, that's healthier than aspirin actually. Um, But there are all sorts of FDA restrictions on it because it's a highly politicized medication, even though it's a totally safe medication. Um, And so we have some advocacy uh, systems that are we're getting set up in place. And we have a a number of things that we're we have an amazing network of over 1600 rabbis and cantors and other Jewish clergy of which the good rabbi address right here is one of them and um, that are part of our Rabbis for Repro network. And so we've also got a a number of things set up to help the Jewish community uh, both uh, get mobilized to help everybody and um, to take care of our own because it's gonna be hard no matter what.
0: So I have to ask you this question. Um, A lot of our demographic in Jewish sacred aging uh, older women who lived through the 60s and 70s and remember the way it used to be.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, some of us in our last year of seminary, and for me it was 71, 72, were part of an organization called Clergy Consultation Service on Problem Pregnancy, which actually was in, this is before everything became legal, where we counseled uh, people. It's no secret that what's happening in the country. It's no secret that that what's happening. Why uh, this I cannot understand. Why isn't every city on fire? Why aren't there millions of women marching, protesting, screaming, yelling uh uh lobbying, uh making sure they vote? There just doesn't seem to be it just seems to be Okay, this is going to happen and then we'll deal with it. Am I totally off base? What's
1: What's happening? Where why is it so quiet? Yeah. Yeah. I think to some degree there's a frog boil frog in the water and the pot's going getting a little hotter and a little hotter. Right? the you know Texas happened and nobody thought that would happen. And there was the immediate shock and the immediate outrage, and then it's been on the books for six months. And then these laws keep getting passed, and there's this sense of shock and unreal reality about it. Um, I think, to some degree, people are kind of in shock and waiting. Um, to some degree, uh, you know, it, there's definitely. I, I mean, I know that in the repro world, people are planning. There's, there's going to be a lot of noise. In June and July, um, presumably after this decision is handed down. Um, in terms of strategic impact, it's not um, once WIPA failed, um, there was the Women's Health Protection Act. Um, then, you know, in terms of a, a policy impact, there's there's not much that can be done on the federal level right now. Uh, there's plenty that can be can happen on the state level. Voting rights legislation is as critical as ever because what, you know, midterms could not be more crucial. Oh, yeah. There's so much at stake. And I, I want to say really, really clearly that the attacks on um, on reproductive health rights and justice, the attacks on transgender health access and, and transgender safety, the attacks on gay kids uh, and and just basic sex ed information about the existence of homosexuality, right? The attacks on voting rights, the attacks on accurate history, they're all interconnected. And um, yeah, I mean, I think people are 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 shocked and stunned and overwhelmed. And I think the pandemic has also, um, you know, people have been, there's this deep sense of, of grief and burnout that people are dealing with that has taken a lot of of energy out of people's um
0: there is a co- capacity. Yeah, there is a covid fatigue there's no there's no question and then there's zoom fatigue and covid fatigue no question about it
1: right and 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 in the you know there was um there was a huge um, a huge mobilization to get this uh this administration into power and i think there's still this sort of shock and rage that that this is where we are um, and and people you know the people who are passing these laws are taking advantage of that
0: the newsletter that you write or edit right life is sacred text talk to me about that how often does it come out somebody wants it is it on your website and if you have the website what is the website just in case
1: it is lifeisasacredtext.substack.com. It's a very slow, very winding uh, voyage through the Torah. Uh, I am not going Parsha by Parsha, per se. I'm going at the pace that I want to go at. So sometimes I will spend, um, you know, two or three weeks on what would be one Parsha. And sometimes I will, you know, kind of go at whatever pace I feel like. So I started in June with Bereshit, with the very beginning of the creation of the world, and we are, you know, a almost a year in, and I'm almost through the end of Exodus. Um, I mean, I knew, you know, I knew at some point we were going to dovetail with the traditional Torah reading cycle and then we would part ways again. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, this was never going to be a one year project. No, no, no. So, um, that's fine. So, um, so once a week, it's an essay on whatever's happening in the Torah. And it's less of a traditional Devar Torah and more of a um, an ongoing argument for, Um, this book as a mechanism for, you know, in some ways it's, it's, it's a drusha but uh, for, for the ways that it can transform us and turn us into the kinds of people that can be useful for a world in need of healing. Um, and on Thursdays it's for, for people who are part of the paid tier, like five bucks a month. It's not, um. Not uh, prohibited, but for people who want to be part of that, um, then Thursdays, there's like a text, interactive text study that happens. It's asynchronous. So you kind of log on whenever and engage with, um, with the conversation. Um, and it's very delightful Beit Midrash. Kind cool. Of. Um, and it's, and it's people, uh, you know, Jews and non-Jews, people with lots of text background, people who are, you know, doing this engaging for the first time it's it's a whole different level you know people who are are engaging in all sorts of different ways um so everybody celebratory justice focused jamming
0: so uh, you've written you've written um on the new jewish feminism um you have to talk walk me through that
1: oh um, so that, uh, that was my first book that was, that was 20 years ago. Um, was when well, my first, my very, very first book was called Yentl's Revenge. And then the subtitle was The Next Generation of Jewish Feminism. And that was an anthology of, uh, young Jewish feminists that I put together when I was 25 or 26 and, um, was an amazing collection and I get to say that because it was, you know, <laughs> it was literally some people that I knew and a lot of people that I didn't know who answered a call for submissions. And, you know, Iraqi feminists talking about the um, critiquing normativity as we call it now, and uh, talking about uh, body image and talking about sex positivity um, and just paving a way and, you know, creating a voice for... Um, uh, the young women of my generation. Um, and it turned, so Yentl's revenge turned 20 last year. It was wild. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you know, to feel no, old. No. Oh, older. Trust yeah. me. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, Danya, did, 20 years later, okay? Um, yeah. I was part of the, I mean, uh, Sally was in my class at HUC uh, 50 years ago. Right. And so there's several iterations. So where where do you see this movement now, uh, the Jewish feminism, which has helped restructure American Judaism? No, no question about that. No question about that.
1: Yeah. Um, I see it growing. I see it growing and expanding and it has given birth to so many new, possibilities for Judaism. I think the core question that Jewish feminism asked was whose voices aren't we hearing in the text and around the table, right? And when, you know, you have 2000 years of commentary and suddenly you add women into the room and you realize that there are new questions that can be asked because of someone else's lived experience and that that, cha- that new, exciting, powerful Torah can c- come out of someone's lived experience, right? And that now there is um, the Trans Halacha Project run by Laini Solomon and Rabbi Becky Silverstein, right? That they are creating... Uh, new pathways for halacha, for Jewish law, um by and for transgender people, right? That is, again, like, because there are certain questions and certain ideas that come out of lived embodied experience that can, you know, that, that have to come from those who are deep into it. You have Svara, which is a queer yeshiva, right? People who are, um who are coming from, from different backgrounds can bring in new experiences. I'm starting to see the new Torah from Jews of color. We have uh, Amud is a, a Beit Midrash, a, a space of learning that is f- exclusively for Jews of color. And I'm so excited to see the new theology and the new ways of thinking and the new ways of approaching text that comes out of that that again it's this question of that's not just i mean there is a the question of who is on our board, who do we see as leaders right who who do we as as role models who's who feels comfortable in our spaces right that there's that level of the question. But then there's the like, how do we understand what our paradigms are? What is our theology? Like, what questions have we not even thought to ask of our texts, right? There's just dis- more disability Torah, more disability-based, you know, Torah by and and for disabled folks is, is coming in, you know. And it's, it's, there there is more and better theology, more and better philosophy of jewish law is coming in because we're more voices and more people with more experiences are are now in the driver's seat and that's really exciting and i feel like that's you know like that's the next generation of feminism is that feminism is is all of this
0: well yeah and 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 when i go out and and speak a lot of times when we talk about what's happening now i would say this is this is probably one of the most exciting creative moments in american jewish history right now it's being done in many cases yeah not through synagogues or through denominations but there's this groundswell of real creativity a very powerful creativity that's trying to find its way into people's lives and homes based upon a lot of what they're living what people are actually living um on Repentance and Repair. Um, you write about forgiveness. Talk to me about how you're playing that out, especially in this day and age when you seem to be in, in great need of a lot of forgiveness.
1: Well, it's not just about forgiveness. It's about uh It's about, it's about repentance. Um, so the book... Really began after me too, um, when I realized that um our culture was really struggling to try to figure out what does it mean when, you know, when somebody does harm, how do we understand like then what? What do we ask of them? What is accountability? What does justice look like? When do we, when do we say it's okay for them to come back and be in community? When is it okay if they're a public figure? Do they say that they've done enough accountability work? And what are we asking them to do? What is the role of the victim? What are the obligations of the perpetrator? And like, people were just really looking, like, kind of casting about because American culture is not very good at this, and I. I have my reason. I have my ideas about why that is, and I have laid them out in the book. Um, and Judaism has actually a very, very good, very clear rubric about how you do this work. Maimonides, in particular, uh, laid out this, the laws of repentance in his masterwork, the Mishnah Torah. And I believe there are five steps that he lays out um, in the laws of repentance. You know, confession, beginning to change. Uh, amends, uh, apology, and then making different choices next time. And as I started to look, I started to see that it's applicable, not just in our personal lives, but in the public sphere, when someone famous commits harm that impacts not just the the, uh, one victim, but that impacts the culture at large, right? It impacts, you can apply it to institutional harm when there are many stakeholders involved. Um, It applies when you talk about harm perpetrated on the national level. Um, It applies when we think about consequences and appropriate consequences for harm, which is really relevant when we want to have a conversation about criminal justice, what that can, you know, can or should look like. Um, So, you know, in Judaism, forgiveness, you know, we don't even bring up—the concept of forgiveness—until the perpetrator has done real, genuine, thorough, meaningful repentance work. We don't, you know, that doesn't even start to come up. And even then, I—I I believe that Maimonides's uh, ideas about forgiveness are much more nuanced than are often kind of quoted in the Jewish world. So,
0: yeah, he's um, a lot.
1: I, like I think it's no, not no. Bad, and
0: and and we, he has a lot of nuance yeah. in in a lot of his. It's always amazing when I teach him as related to our the health and wellness stuff that we do, how uh, contemporary and insightful he was, hundreds and hundreds hundreds of years ago, and um, lay people just, you know. Wow, that's I say. You know, th- this is Judaism. It's twelfth century, thirteenth century, twelfth thirteenth century. This is not modern. This is Judaism from. Are beginning. So, so we're speaking with Rabbi Daniel Ruttenberg, the author of On Repentance and Repair, the scholar-in-residence for the National Council of Jewish Women, and the editor of the newsletter, Life is a Sacred Text. If somebody wants to contact you again, Daniel, what's, what's your website? What's, what's the contact information? Uh,
1: so my website is net. And I'm on Twitter at, at the radar, R-A-T-H-E-R-A-D-R, um, which, you know, in, in Judaism, it's the, you know, the r r a for rabbi and then your initials. And when I was in rabbinical school, it struck me as very funny that I would at some point be the radar. Um, so it was just meant to be a joke and now it's become like a thing. Um, Or very, very little thing, but it's just (laughs) tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, I'm around. (laughs) I'm findable. So
0: before we conclude, um, I read somewhere in, and just looking at some stuff that you've done, um, you used a phrase that kind of like, that I got to ask you from your own career and your development, you know, spiritually, theologically, why and how... Why and how were you quote surprised by God unquote?
1: Um, right, so that's the the title of um, of a memoir that I wrote uh, that came out in two thousand and eight. Um, so I, when I was growing up, I I grew up with um, kind of a not very inspiring American suburban. Jewish education, Um, very perfunctory, you know, we were high holiday and, and Pesach Jews and, um, you know, my bat mitzvah, nobody, my bat mitzvah was not a spiritual experience, (laughs) we'll put it that way. And so I was probably 13 or 14 when I decided I was an atheist and, um, remained so, through and and I wasn't just like a lowercase a atheist. I, I became <laughs> kind of a. An evangelical atheist. Yeah, <laughs> and I I got into the study of religion in college, and it was like this is what people believe, and this is what really happened. You know, let me tell you, I was, I, I was a complete pain in the tush. and um, so for me, the realization that a Judaism wasn't nearly as stupid as I had assumed it was and that B2,000 years of nuanced theology actually didn't think that God was an angry dude up in the sky with a you know temper tantrum issue that needed to be managed um, but that actually spoil alert the mystical experiences I had started to have towards the end of college had something to do with how many 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 theologians were talking about God was. Um, very confusing <laughs> and something I had to reckon with. Um, and it was Rabbi Alan Liu, Zichrona Livracha, it was, it was his fault that I managed to figure out. Well, his
0: high out. holiday books are very good. Um, so that was your surprise. huh? Anyway, Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, thank you for being with us. Um, good luck you're going to have a busy summer and fall i fear a very busy one um keep in touch and good luck and and just we're going to need a lot of it we're going to need a lot of it so thank you very much for joining us today and most of all just stay healthy and, and 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 stay safe and to all of you uh thank you very very much for joining us on this edition of seekers of meaning the podcast arm of jewish sacred aging again if you want to contact me um Rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com. And if you'd like to make a tax-free donation to help support our work, go to the website, Jewish Sacred Aging, and go down to the conveniently located Donate button, click on it, and just follow the prompts. It's pretty easy to do that, and we appreciate it. Seekers of Meaning is produced at the Broadcast Center of Lubetkin Media Companies in beautiful Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And again, a shout out to our producer, Steve Lubetkin. Again, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. I look forward to greeting you on our next Secrets of Meaning podcast and TV show. In the meantime, stay safe, everybody. Be kind to each other. Stay healthy. Shalom.